everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers who sit around, drink coffee, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today, your hosts are Chaz Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 97. Chaz Brinchley has a new book coming out. Woo! <laughs> it has been a while. It's been a while, but... I'm sure, I and everybody else naturally listening here follows you on Patreon, I'm sure, and has been reading some of your chalet school on Mars, your crater school books. And my understanding is all of that is coming together and your publication date is sometime next month? Sometime next month for the first volume, Three Twins of the Crater School, yes. Um, and then there will hopefully be a book every six months ongoingly. For those of us who follow him on Twitter and Facebook, Chaz has been writing like a demon. So I have no, <laughs> no doubt at all that you're going to make that. Now, there are maybe people that tragically grew up in America in 90s or later that don't know about the original Chalet School books by Eleanor Brent Dyer. And so you love them. Tell us about where they come from, the original Chalet School books. Sure. So that people understand that this, it's, I don't think derivative is the right word or pastiche isn't quite the right word. What do we call this? An homage? It's an homage. It's a tribute. You can call it fan fiction if you like, because honestly, it's not very far removed. But it, originally it was in the Aus- Austrian Tyrol before it was moved to Guernsey. So something about, you know, yeah. Nazis. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely. I and mean, these, there are 60 books. In, in the Chalet School canon. The first one was published in 1926, and the last one when she died in 1960. And they portray the adventures of a school established by an Englishwoman on English educational principles, but in Europe, in the middle of Europe, in the Austrian Tyrol, up in the mountains. And the, I mean, the reason for this is financial, um, because she can't afford to start a school in England. But but she can do it in in a, in a poorer country. The first the first pupil is her own sister, who is much significantly younger than her, and they attract pupils from pupils from England and pupils from from elsewhere in Europe. So this, I, I love this. The school has a a policy where on Mondays and Thursdays lessons are taught in English, on Tuesdays and Fridays yeah Tuesdays and Fridays they're in French. Wednesdays and Saturdays, they're in German, and, and you can speak any language you like on Sunday. Oh, well, there you <laughs> Which go. Is, I mean, it's delightful. It's hopelessly impractical in real life um, right. because, because pupils turn up speaking not a word of the other two languages, and, and they are sort of quietly expected. I mean, they, they, are, they are given a period of grace, about two weeks, and after that, they are expected to understand which is just nonsense, but but it's a lovely, lovely notion. Well, it, it comes from the old standard. If you just speak a language slowly and loudly enough, yeah. everyone yes. clearly will understand. Exactly. This is how the English have dealt with Europeans for many a long year. And there <laughs> and we are... believe it stoutly. Yes. And there's, I think there have been a few other of the boarding... I mean, if you look at the boarding school tradition books, yes. you have the Tom Brown School Days mm. and some of the others... Which kind of the if you follow George MacDonald Frazier, the Flashman series, Flashman books, which yes. I, I think everybody should immediately run out and read some of those because they're hilarious. 
that com- uh, they're also that combination of homage and yet what if we took the worst character that was the worst bully and followed him in the future to see yeah. what became of him. Yeah, no, I, was, I mean, the George McDonald Fraser was a stroke of genius. Yeah. Um, and Tom Brown's School Days is a book that I love. I, 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 I should point out at this point that I have loved boarding school stories of any kind since I was a small child and that I went to a boarding school myself. And I'm obliged to tell you that boarding school in real life is nothing like the stories. And, and I didn't enjoy it at all. My brother went to New Mexico Military Institute for oh, a year when, when he and I were feuding a little bit too fiercely yeah. at home. So uh-huh. in America, I think there are many kids that get sent away saying, we'll fix your parental problem. Yes. <laughs> so I, um, I don't know. There's a lot of feelings either way on it. So I didn't want to weigh in too much. But yeah. boarding school is a little different. We have Deirdre. Deirdre Schween, who is our web spider, her parents were in the foreign service, so sent all over the world. So she had a couple years in a, a boarding school, high school as well. Right. I, my, my mother was the daughter of empire. Um, she was born in Rangoon, grew up in Kuala Lumpur and Singapore between the wars. And she had this idyllic childhood running rampant. And and then when she hit teenage, she was sent home to boarding schools mm. um, and didn't see her parents for years on end, literally, because it was just far too expensive and took far too long to. Um, uh, so she had a yeah, she had a miserable time at boarding school. This did not stop her sending me to boarding school. Um, well, I had an equally miserable time, but. We will not talk about that because I still <laughs> love boarding school stories. And and see, I had, I had I, because my mother was a daughter of empire and because I moved to Silicon Valley from England um, and because here in Silicon Valley, like NASA is a couple of miles down the road and, and SETI is a couple of miles down the road. And I could walk there on Wednesday afternoons when they had this lovely symposium um, where serious planetary scientists would talk about the projects they have on the next uh, mission to Mars. And, and it was just at the time when Curiosity had been landed on Mars. Um, so, yeah, Mar- Mars was everywhere. And, and I was curious. Um, there was also there was a com- conversation going on. Uh, we will come back to boarding schools. Um, but there was a conversation going on in the science fiction community at the time about steampunk and how it was the default was that it was always modeled on the British Empire and it didn't need to be like that and you could set steampunk stories anywhere in any culture Uh, which of course you can but that conversation perversely pushed me back into thinking about the British Empire and what would it be like what would happen um if Mars were a province of the British Empire. Um, how would that change things? How would it change history? Um, and how would it change the empire? Um, and 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 this just fascinated me. So I created this kind of steampunk old Mars. I mean, this is this is a Mars with atmosphere and canals and and Martians this and a British very- colony. I was going to say very space 1889 for those of us that played the role playing game that assumed that ether ships will carry you over there. But of yes. course, there's water in the canals. Yes. So. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Very much like that, though. I never played the game. Um, and 
so there was this has been sort of you know, my main driving fictional force for years um mostly since i came to america um which was nine years ago um and the the basic rubric says if mars were a colony of the british empire then so and so would totally have gone there where so and so might be anybody from oscar wilde to um lawrence of arabia to a houseman mm -hmm. um all sorts of people would inevitably have gone to mars at some point in their difficult lives um <laughs> Alan Bradley's Flavia de Luce, instead of being sent to Canada in the 50s, might have been sent to might Mars. Might well have been sent to Mars, yes, indeed. Exactly. So I've been writing mostly short stories. There is, there is a, a novel that I cannot finish um, about Kipling on Mars, because Kipling would so have gone to Mars if the opportunity were there. Um, he went everywhere. He did. Um, and so, I, you know, I mean, I, I think about this all the time. And... I was walking home from the farmer's market and the thought suddenly occurred that if Mars were a province of the British Empire, then the chalet school would totally have a sister foundation there because it was already established in the canon that boys get sent home to England for their education, but girls don't because it's far too expensive. Um, so there, there would be a crying need for good schools for girls on Mars. And a lot of them were going to be inevitably boarding schools. Right. Um, so I've been, for the last several years, I've been writing um, chalet school stories on Mars. English schoolgirls um, growing up on Mars with Martian creatures and aliens all around them. Well, I was, I was musing that the original, let's call it a leitmotif, seemed to be a formula of there's always a new girl who troublesome, difficult, rebellious, who eventually reforms and conforms in your story. Do you follow that same idea or have you um, gone in a different way? Not so much. I mean, that's absolutely the model of, of Eleanor Brent Dyer's Shelley School books. Almost all the books follow that pattern. And it's kind of endearing, but I, and I thought, I expected because I was writing an homage, as you say, I expected to follow that same pattern. But we are, we are sort of um, two and a half novels and a collection of short stories in at this point. And, 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 and a that has <laughs> and a cookbook. Absolutely. I just wanted to point out that I, I, we have enjoyed many of the the recipes from the chalet school on Mars. Greater school. Greater school on Mars. Yes. Mrs. Bailey's kitchen. Mrs. Bailey's Kitchen. For, Which for actually you can, you, you can find on Medium. We'll post a link. <laughs> but, yeah, so I do have girls turning up unexpectedly, which is fun. Mm -hmm. um, and these are, these are troubled girls, certainly. But the, the traditional pattern in the chalet school books is that a girl will turn up and be really, really difficult for one reason or another reason. You can usually blame it on their home lives. Uh, they haven't been taught proper discipline, you know. And they will get into trouble after trouble at the chalet school. And, and then generally they will have an accident um, because of their own willfulness mm. and end up in the sand for a while and somehow being hurt and damaged and in the sand, sorry, the sanatorium, fixes them. 
so that they come out much nicer girls than they went in, um, which is, as I say, I find it endearing, but it's not terribly <laughs> credible. Oh, speaking as a formal girl myself, I have yeah. to say it's almost the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so my girls um, tend to adjust by more dramatic means. The other thing that has to be said is that there is, there is politics in this series, because while Mars is a colony of the British Empire, Venus is a colony of Russia, and Russia resents this, rather, um, because Venus is a hellhole, and Mars is productive and gorgeous. And the, the First World War didn't happen the way we know it, because the Kaiser and all basically all of Europe are so intimidated by Britain at this point because Britain has a whole extra planet of resources to draw on. Mm. You know, nobody could go to war with Britain except Russia because Russia has a planet of its own and, and being sent to Venus is the new being sent to Siberia. They, send all, they ship out all their difficult people there. So the First World War sort of happens in, in the, I mean, the entire continent is wrapped in war, but it's it's Russia and, at the start, the Ottoman Empire against Britain and all the other Western European countries. Um, and it's fought out horribly all across, all across Europe. And, of course, inevitably, in the Martian orbit. Uh, the Russians never actually invade Mars, but they do invade and capture both of Mars's moons. Phobos and Deimos. And in the armistice that is signed after the war is over, they don't give Phobos and Deimos back. So everyone on Mars is aware that the Russians are up there on the moons, hurtling about the sky, watching them, wanting them, desiring their planet. Um, And there's a lot of Russian-British espionage stuff going on. Delightful. Will yeah, it's, 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 it's so much fun. Um, <laughs> well, you'll have to read us a little bit of it. Do you have something prepared today? Well, I do. You're not getting any of the Russians at this point. That's ordinarily, fair. when I have... Fair, new... tell, tell us what has happened to the point where you're reading, and we'll yeah. go from there. Yeah, ordinarily, I would start at the beginning. But actually, what I want to do is read you the cover of the book. Now, if you I put all that book. work into writing the cover of the book copy, yeah. then you have to share it. Exactly. A couple of new girls have turned up at the beginning of term, and one of them is a twin, but she's a single twin because she and her sister have been separated by their parents and sent to different schools, which the headmistress of the school really doesn't approve of, but she took the girl anyway. And she has handed the girl over to two other twins. This is why the book is called Three Twins at the Crater School. And every every new girl is always assigned an established pupil. They call them they call them the Sherpas, um, because they will help you up the steep, rocky road of the first few weeks of, of boarding school. Our lone twin, Rachel, has been handed over to Tasha and Tawny, who are the established twins at the Crater School. And they have gone for a walk along the um the Crater School is established, surprisingly, on a crater, on the rim of a crater, which contains this vast crater lake. And the lake contains a naiad, which is the dominant predatory form of 
the aliens on Mars. Um, they go through three stages. There is the um, nymph, which grows into a naiad. The nymphs occupy the canals. The naiads occupy the greater the, the, the crater lakes. And, and then they hatch out like dragonflies into basically giant dragonflies who are called imagotes. That is the life cycle of the Merlins. Um, they're called Merlins because they seem to live their life backwards, but that's a complication, and I'll explain that on another occasion. When we go to look at this to pre-order your book, are they the creature on the cover? They are the creature on That is a naiad. Marvelous. And those are the three twins confronting her. And this is chapter five, or the beginning of chapter five, which is called Over the Hills and Far Away. When a naiad rises... All the village does well to run. It was a saying that dated back to the earliest years of settlement, when whole townships had been destroyed in the night by a naiad disturbed from her lake. In those days, few had the finger talk, no one the bubble talk. There was little communication and less understanding. Things were different now, but not that different. A naiad out of the water couldn't be reasoned with. She couldn't be spoken with at all. Bubble talk only worked underwater, and in the shift from nymph to naiad, it seemed that she forgot her finger talk. No one could explain why that should be. The changes in her body or her brain between one state and the next might account for it, but you couldn't cut her open to find out. It might be mere etiquette, like a girl leaving her country dialect behind when she married a duke. No amount of cutting would teach you that. For the moment, it was simply a known fact that you couldn't talk to a naiad on land. People had tried and died. It was better to run away. She might not come after you. Might not. It was hard, though. Hard to run. When she was so big and so thunderously demanding of your attention. When she filled your view and your brain together so that you couldn't really remember how to move at all. The three twins stood where they were and stared as the creature hauled herself out of the water. They held hands and stared more as she dragged her cumbersome body up the bank and onto the path, no more than a dozen yards away. In the water, they'd been told, she could be monumentally graceful, almost elegant. Out of her natural habitat, she was merely monumental. She had nothing of a nymph's razor fluidity, only bulk and determination, and too many legs and claws in all directions, and a carapace with so many encrustations and so much weed hanging from it, she might have been a unique environment all by herself, if you could only find a jar big enough to bottle her. Perhaps they backed up slowly, unthinkingly, one step at a time. Not far, not far enough. Half the width of the lake might not be far enough. She might seem awkward on land, but that didn't mean she wasn't quick. And she certainly knew they were there. They could see her antennae twitching, reaching towards them, sniffing the wind. Her teachers might have been surprised, or they might not, that it was Tawny, the quiet twin, who tugged her hand free of their new friends and started signing in fluent finger talk. Asked afterwards why she'd ever bothered, she could only say, if she was going to eat us anyway, I wanted her to know that we weren't sheep. I wanted her to remember us. At the time... As far as she or her sister could remember, what she actually signed was the phrase that everyone always started with, which was supposed to be a greeting, but everyone just called it the please don't eat us. And then the how can I help you, which literally translated somewhat closer to if you are lost in darkness, let me guide you to the light. 
except that this was a naiad, not a nymph, and just in time Tawny remembered to turn that around. If you are lost in light, let this little fish guide you to the darkness. She knew how to blow the bubbles for that one. If only the naiad had stayed where she should, down in the deep waters of the lake. How they might actually help, the girls have no idea. They could do no more than point at the water, and surely the naiad knew where that was. Why she might have come up at all, they couldn't begin to guess. Naiads never left their depths, unless something drastic happened to disturb them. Nothing had happened on the lake here since the two major construction projects, the castle and the sanatorium. They were both in the previous century, so long ago that they were lost in history, and were said to have brought up no more than a couple of nymphs, curious to see what was afoot and whether there was anything worth eating. The naiad made no reply to Tawny's careful finger talk. Several of her secondary eye stalks did seem to turn in the girl's direction, even while her head with, a, with its compound primary eyes was scanning the crater rim and turning towards the school. Did she hesitate? Perhaps. Perhaps she did still understand the sign language so carefully developed over time. Perhaps she might even have replied if her antennae hadn't lost their suppleness or her mind its subtlety. Or she might have eaten them just as a snack on her way to the summit. They never had the chance to learn. Two things happened. Two girls came plunging down onto the path beyond the naiad, both of them gesturing frantically, half finger talk and half just wild waving. They shouted as they waved, but between their breathlessness and the distance and the shocking creaks and groans and snaps that emerged from the naiad's shell as she moved, it was hard for any of the twins to hear or to listen through the simple mind-numbing impact of having a naiad between them and almost close enough to touch. One word they did pick up, though, not by hearing, but by sight. Why does Lisa's friend keep signing nymph? Tasha demanded. She must be a new girl, and I don't know where she's from. Maybe she's never seen a Merlin of any sort before. But this close, no one could think this one's a nymph. It's not nymph she's signing, Rachel said. It's nymphs, plural and the other girls pointing to the lake. It was hard, so hard to turn their heads away from the naiad in her presence, in her potency. But they looked, all three of them, one by one, towards the water the naiad had renounced. And yes, it was turbulent with more creatures rising up, a squadron, almost a swarm of them. Every naiad has her own attendant nymphs, schooled to tend and feed her. Any others she would eat, but these she kept for their service, for their loyalty. There was another saying all through the colony, never come between a naiad and a nymph. It was truly not a place you'd want to be. If the nymph was a stranger, you were standing between a naiad and her lunch. If not, between a servant and its mistress. Either way would not end well for you. The first nymph to break the surface pulled itself onto the bank behind the three schoolgirls, so that they found themselves willy-nilly standing between it and the naiad. On the narrow pathway, the only strip of level ground. One creature must cross it to reach the other, whichever way that went. The lake offered no escape. There was another nymph just at the water's edge, stretching out its first long spindly legs to come ashore. And more beyond that, seemingly all the nymphs the lake contained, the naiad's entire entourage. There were four, five, six that the girls could see. The water seethed with them. Oh, help! There was no one to help them, though, except themselves. Tasha was finger-talking frantically to the nymph and winning no response. Tawny had given up on the naiad and was signing past her to the other girls, too pale and breathless to shout across the distance. 
It needed Rachel to seize each twin by an elbow, interrupting whatever they were trying to say and drag them across the path. They'd left the mistress's garden some way behind them and the fenced walkway that would have led them through to the playing fields. That walk marked the end of school grounds and the end of man's work to tame the crater wall. Here it rose up, high and stark, bare red rock in jagged crags. Climb, Rachel said shortly. We have to. I'm tallest. I'll give you a boost. No need, Tasha said after one swift glance at the rock face. Dad says we're half monkey. We can climb this if you can. With a nymph on one side and a naiad on the other, Rachel thought she could levitate if need be. But the rock was rough, offering handholds to nimble fingers and ledges for feet. She took the twins at their word, trusting them to follow as she stretched up to the first hold and began to climb. She and Jessica had been climbing with their parents on the lower slopes below Cassini. Their father had promised them a holiday in the mountains and proper coaching from a member of the Olympian Club, someone who had stood on the highest point known to humankind, the summit of Mount Olympus itself. There was nothing daunting about this solid slab. Don't look down was always good advice, though. So was don't look back when you knew there was a Merlin behind you. She set her mind to the task and scrambled quickly upwards. Fifteen feet or so above the path, she found a ledge wide enough to squat on. Was that higher than a nymph could reach? Perhaps. But she wasn't sure about the naiad. Even so, she deliberately paused there and went against all that good advice. She looked down to see where the twins were and found them both hot on her heels, racing up to the same ledge. It was broad enough to hold all three of them, but there were two nymphs now unnervingly close below. Could nymphs climb? Possibly not, but she didn't know for sure. A naiad certainly climbed at least once in their lives, when they forsook the water to hang from the branch of a high pine in their chrysalis before hatching out as an imago. Maybe nymphs could chase up a rock wall as readily as sandroaches scuttled up brick and plaster. We need to keep going, she gasped, bending to offer Tawny a helping hand. Yes, but wait. Tawny helped her sister in her turn then gestured largely to the crater school girls still lingering on the path beyond the agitated Merlins. They exchanged finger talk. Rachel couldn't see what Tawny was signing, with her so close and the Merlins so distracting, but she saw what one girl below signed back. High in the tree, the chrysalis holds three nymphs safe till the imago comes. The girl was clearly batty. That made no sense at all. And I shall leave that there so that you can figure it out later. I think that's perfect. We will include the link to pre-order this um, on Amazon. Or who is your publisher on this one? My publisher is Wizards Tower Press. Wizards Tower Press. Um, we will link to them as well so that people yeah. can order it directly for those that wish to avoid Amazon. Yeah. And we will put links to this podcast and this delightful story and others that Chaz has read. Don't forget Live at Mally's on the website, which is at www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. And you've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our sponsors are art, coffee, chocolate, rum, and a really nice glass of wine. We also love Jackal Designs, who is designing a brand new 100th episode t-shirt for our 100th episode coming up. That'll be great. 
And to all of you out there listening, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. 